When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. And by Netflix, presenting Season 3 of its original series, House of Cards, about ruthless D.C. power couple Frank and Claire Underwood, starring Golden Globe winner Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. All episodes are available on Friday, February 27th. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Red Room of Pain edition. It's Wednesday, February 18th, 2015, and on today's program, we're going to talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie adaptation of E.L. James' monster bestseller. Reviewers have said it has the erotic value of a Pottery Barn ad, but it still seems to be the movie everyone wants to see and hate watch and talk about. So we went ahead and did just that so you won't have to. And Steve, I assume this is, of course, your favorite movie of the year so far, so you can fill us in on that. Uh, oh, my God, absolutely. I mean, I was waiting for a biopic about me and Julia Turner, but <laughs> now we don't, now we're totally redundant. <laughs> I, I think it's obvious also to all of our listeners who would play Sub and who would play Dom. <laughs> all right, we'll get into that in just a minute. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> and then for our second segment, we'll be joined by Slate's Jamel Bowie, who wrote about Jon Stewart stepping down from the Daily Show desk and w- whether or not Jon Stewart has been bad for the liberals who love him. And for our last segment, with the Oscars coming up this Sunday night, we're going to talk about the red carpet and the revolt among some celebrities, at least some female celebrities, against red carpet sexism. Joining me is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Dana. And Steve, joining us from Alabama. Oh, yeah. I mean, deep in, deep in red state territory. It's like I've been dropped into the Apennines in World War II or something. I'm uh, very covert here, but uh, in all seriousness, having a wonderful time in the Alabama wiregrass. Did you watch uh, Fifty Shades of Grey in an Alabama multiplex? I did indeed, yeah. I mean, if you want to call it a multiplex, uh, it was a duoplex. But, um, yeah, Monday afternoon showing... Monday matinee. I, I did a matinee as well. All right, we'll get we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Julia, before we jump into Fifty Shades of Grey, talk to us about what's happening on the Slate Plus segment today. Yeah. So, at the end of our show today, we'll be discussing tour riders. Jack White faced opprobrium after his tour rider leaked, and along with it, an elaborate request for a specific sort of guacamole, down to the size of the avocado chunks and the varietal of pepper to be used. He was planning to play a show at the University of Oklahoma. The student newspaper got a hold of this writer, published it, and the internet erupted with cries of dividum. And then Jack White himself erupted with cries of crappy journalism and said, hey, like my team just wants guacamole. What gives? Uh, We'll discuss tour riders and whether they reveal stars to be divas and babies or just hardworking individuals. uh, Who would like some nice guacamole. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't, Dana? Uh, So join us for the Slate Plus segment after the show. All right, so let's get into our first topic. Fifty Shades of Grey, the film adaptation of E.L. James' bondage fantasy novel trilogy, came out this weekend, and it flogged every other contender at the box office roundly with an opening weekend take of something like $85 million. Um, it's, 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 it's a huge, huge hit. And uh, so none of us have read the book. Is this correct? No, and somehow we've, we've avoided discussing this entire phenomenon on the show. Like somehow this book became the best-selling thing in American publishing in 50 years, and we were like, oh, no. We won't discuss Fifty Shades of Grey here in the uh, rarefied funds of the state culture. I like your use of silly impression. That's awesome. Oh 
no. But then it came to the multiplex and we were like, fine, if it's only... <laughs> was it really because of our dainty crooked pinkies that we didn't discuss it? Or is it that we don't discuss novels and the audio book club already did it? Uh, Julia, all, all I could say is you have to talk to me in that voice when you've got me tied to the uh, <laughs> rack. Um, I, I, maybe it's just because we don't do books or maybe that's what we told ourselves, Dana. But when a book gets this big, it might behoove us to do it. And we did not. So now... We have entered the Red Room of Pain, and I'm so <laughs> curious what you guys thought. I felt I had revelations. I felt like I th- it was not what I expected at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can't wait to get into the revelations. Um, okay, well, Steve, give me a quick reaction. With Alabama, Fifty Shades of Grey, how did it all work for you? Uh, well, let me begin by saying it's. I walked out thinking it's kind of like they made a Paul Schrader ride at Disneyland. You know, it's like if you look at the sheer architecture of the thing, like the blueprint of the thing, a man who makes a billion dollars before the age of 30, but can only relate to women romantically by totally, if you want to call it romantically, by completely owning and dominating them. You know, a young woman who saved herself and probably there, you know, for the right man, who therefore maybe has extremely naive ideals about love and sex, falls for the helicopter ride. You can imagine Paul Schrader, you know, much less the Marquis de Sade doing something with this, real with this. It's kind of a challenge to do something totally unreal with it, but apparently E.L. James has done that. I will say that also, I will add, with haste, I will add that, you know, of all the movies that we've seen, hundreds of movies we've seen over the last five years for this show, of the ones that have left me feeling de-enhanced, I would say this is not even in the bottom 5%. It's very competently done. I like both performances. It's It's well-directed without being originally directed, but... You know, it's competent through and through, but we can get into why it's preposterous. Uh, but, Ooh. you know, it's. I would say, you know, if I had gone in knowing absolutely nothing about it, I would have said, you know, basically banal, but not total garbage. Wow. I'm very curious to hear more about the fact that you thought both performances were competent, because that was not my view. But my main takeaway from this, so... So in my head, Fifty Shades of Grey, it's, here's what I knew about it going in. It started as Twilight fan fiction, hugely popular, like soft porn erotica that somehow became like totally normalized to read on the subway about BDSM. So I sort of assumed it was like pro-BDSM, right? And I always thought it was kind of weird that like a third of America got really into this book about bondage. But bondage is a pathology in the in the plot of this. Right, which, which, I which is why a lot of real-life BDSM practitioners are objecting to the I movie. had not followed that at all. So I thought that somehow this movie was going to, like, you know, so, so the trappings of the movie, you meet this innocent naive with, shrimp, like, frumpy sweaters, and she meets this young billionaire, and he's just so compelling and formal, and he's both polite and courteous. She's never met anyone both polite and courteous before. <laughs> Plus, he's rich. Uh, and anyway, it's like the setup is is part of the experience. You, you mirror her experience of, like, wondering just how twisted this shit is going to get, right? And you're like, I, I heard about this bondage. When does the bondage happen? Like right now, they're just dancing in a gigantic penthouse with a piano. Um, And then you get to the bondage and it's like super fucking campy and friendly. Like there's a lot of like stroking with peacock feathers (laughs) and like a gentle dusting with with something that looks like a leather feather duster, which apparently is a flogger. But the flogging is done like very artisanally. Like it is not violent and in the psychology of the main characters, like, he's presented as, like, he's the adopted son in his early childhood. His mom was, like, a literal crack whore, and horrible things happened to him, but he can't even remember who his mom was. So it's, and then, and then like, the friend of his stepmom, like, introduced him to BDSM when he was a teen, and he was deflowered in such an environment and was a sub before he became a dumb. And it's just, it's, like, super negative. It's basically, like, BDSM is for twisted freaks, and maybe the abiding, twinkly love of Dakota Johnson can, you know, teach him to love again, which is such a conventional love story. So, yeah, totally conventional. I, I completely agree. But Dana, you're the film critic. We got to hear. What did you think of this? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I'm sort of aghast, Steve, that you found it like a competent piece of cinema. I mean, I just thought <laughs> I basically did think that it was total garbage. Although it is certainly fascinating and to watch both as a piece of camp as it unfolds and as this cultural object that's held up in, in this that is being so highly valued and that everybody seems to want a piece of. I mean, to me, it was one of those movies where every line of dialogue feels like there's a there's a, a 10-minute gap until the next one. <laughs> you know, there was just like this stiffness and artificiality. And um, I guess Jamie Dornan, the guy who plays Christian Grey, the forbidding um, Dom billionaire, is a 
very poor thespian, I have to say. <laughs> and I feel like Dakota Johnson, who, by the way, is the daughter of Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson, um, is is getting very, very praised for her 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 performance, essentially because in, in comparison to the piece of wood she's acting next to, she is mildly expressive. No, I, I think that's totally unfair. I thought he was trying to escape with both the paycheck and his dignity, and he, well, he got out fully with one and at least with a shred of the other. I think the, the attempt to cling to dignity really put a, like, a gigantic anchor on the film and that she is like a great actress. I totally disagree, Dana, that she like only looked competent by comparison. I mean, I'd have to see her in something else. I have no idea. But that that this role is such a who, what is this character? And she I all she has know, to do is she, bite her lip. She somehow imbues it with like sparkly knowingness, like comic wit. She's <laughs> oh like God. fucking hilarious to her roommate. She's she somehow makes this utterly preposterous figure to be a believable person. I thought she was amazing. I mean, I love Melanie Griffith, and I think both Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson are sort of underrated as comic actors, right? Um, Like, if you think about Working Girl, I came out of it, like, blown away by Dakota Johnson. I thought she was great. And I thought, in general, I mean, Amanda Hess pointed this out in a piece on Slate that I thought was very smart. Like, Fifty Shades of Grey, a lot of people read it kind of ironically to see what all those other people who read it sincerely were so psyched about. And there were some academics who studied this and suggested that perhaps everybody was reading it ironically or a massive proportion of it. It was widely read by like 18 to 29-year-old young women, not the sort of imagined unsophisticated other who was reading the book somehow. And Amanda suggested that, that the movie somehow very carefully was pitched to the hate readers of the book all through through the kind of clever and smart-seeming casting and performance at the heart of, of the movie. And I thought that seemed totally right to me. I thought this movie was hilarious and fun, and I would completely yeah. recommend it. Like I, I agree. And let me hear. I'll make a case for what's interesting about the movie that may actually be interior to its own self-consciousness and then what was interesting to me that is clearly totally exterior to it. The first is that I think early on in any, the germ of human behavioral truth on screen, I believe, maybe I was just trying to get out with my dignity intact, was uh, you know, early on every relationship is a power struggle and you are figuring out, this is maybe a little cold and I don't mean it to sound that way, but you are figuring out sort of who holds the power, who maybe can, who has the power to withhold, who has who's going to be too enthusiastic, who's going to be sloppy, who's going to be pin neat. Uh, and these are kind of emo- emotionally happen- happening below the level of social power, which may not map onto that. And that is interesting. And what the one, I think one of the reasons why she has more to do is he's just this object of almost perfect desirability according to, you know, kind of a dime novel sensibility, on top of which has been grafted a totally implausible psychology of damage. But she actually is going through something real, which is attempting to bring power to the relationship when she's repeatedly being asked to have none, both by his social power and by his need for total emotional and sexual dominance. That, to me, was at least somewhat interesting, and therefore, kudos to her for bringing that out in the performance. The thing that's not interior to the consciousness of the film, but to the consciousness of Steve Metcalf, is what's the first novel you read if you take a history of the English novel? It's an old novel that no one would read otherwise, I think, called Pamela by Samuel Richardson. It's an epistolary novel about a housekeeper who is being serially not sexually assaulted, but virtually assaulted by her master. I mean, we're talking, this is a 17th century novel. This person has almost everything but ownership, full ownership rights over her. Isn't it 18th century, Steve? Is it 18th century? I thought it was written in the late... You know, you may be right. I really, really like that our Fifty Shades of Grey conversation has devolved into a debate over... <laughs> the century in which Pamela was published, like I feel like that's a very culture gap. Well, while I continue to run off at the mouth, someone Google when Pamela was published. Seventeen forty. Okay, so it's it's mid eighteenth century. This person exercises something like almost the liberty she derives from being a nominal wage earner from this master is minimal enough that she feels endangered or or very put upon by his sexual advances. At the same time. Her withholding is coquettish and a power ploy in order to get him basically to sign over contractual marriage rights to her. And it's funny that we've kind of made a full circle. The pretense of a relationship of social equals is completely missing from Pamela's the first novel and from apparently from this E.L. James trilogy and certainly this movie. I mean, so much of what's appealing about it to its target audience is the idea that this guy embodies this certain notion of, I mean, it's very much a one-percenter fantasy 
and to me it's it's brought the notion of the, the novel based idealization of marriage around full circle back to Pamela. I don't know if anyone else in the whole world buys that, but I think that's super interesting. I mean, I do think the making explicit of the power dynamic within a relationship is part of what makes BDSM seem like maybe in in retrospect obvious approach for a mass erotica phenomenon because everybody can relate to that and the, the you know I forget who it was who described the movie as the world's longest contract negotiation I sort of heard that going in and assumed it was a joke but it's not like there's apparently you know a contract that he has his subs sign and they sort of negotiate what the safe words will be and you know whether anal fisting is allowed and this that and the other and they literally like they're literally talking about the contract still and whether she's going to sign it like five minutes before the movie ends in sort of an absurd cliffhangery kind of way. And that notion of making explicit the kind of endless power negotiation that is any relationship is kind of great. I'm like, I loved this movie. I, I, it was absurd, but so delectable. Like, I, I just, even his like lunken woodenness was hilarious. I'd... All right. Well, I think that we should try to spread around Julia Turner's joy by hearing <laughs> hearing a clip from the movie. And maybe you can also hear the glacial pauses between lines that <laughs> made grated against my nerves. Earlier, you said that there are some people who know you well. Why do I get the feeling that that is not true? Mr. Gray, your next meeting is in the conference room. Cancel, please. We're not finished here. Yes, sir. No, I, I'm. I, we. I can go. It's fine. I would like to know more about you. There's really not much to know about me. You said you're an English major. Tell me, was it Charlotte Bronte, Jane Austen, or Thomas Hardy who first made you fall in love with literature? Hardy. I would have guessed Jane Austen. What are your plans after you graduate? I'm just trying to get through finals right now. And then? And then I was planning on moving here to Seattle with Kate. We offer an excellent internship program. I don't think I'd fit in here. <laughs> Look at me. God, it just proceeds from there. I mean, I, you just watch it and you feel like you're already watching Showgirls for the 20th time <laughs> on the first watch. I keep hearing this compared to Showgirls and it makes me crazy. Showgirls is so much more vibrant and fun and crazy and insane and sexy than this movie. <laughs> okay, we have to talk about the sex in this movie. Yes, then. okay. Let's so, talk about the so sex. So since you guys were so thrilled and full of frissons, like, tell me, tell me what you felt about these ridiculous vanilla sex scenes in which, as Julia says, like bondage and domination is symbolized by a peacock feather being gently rubbed over the <laughs> slim abdomen of <laughs> Melanie Griffith's daughter. <laughs> I mean, this sex is so undirty and unfun. Not when you talk about it, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, the sex is super vanilla. I mean, that's the thing. She She's like a virgin, so he has like a favor to woo her and, and with the pleasures that she would get if she became a well-behaved sub. He flowers her with much curling of toes and heaving of torsos and uh she seems to like it i mean I, there's more there's more sex than there is in most other movies like we spend more time looking at her boobs i suppose some people like that <laughs> i don't know i mean even that even the uh the, i mean i guess this is just a ratings problem and they didn't want to get an nc-17 rating but even just the the proportion of female nudity next to male nudity i mean it just seemed so retro all the sex scenes to me the whole idea was sort of like here's a lovely young naked girl who doesn't enjoy looking at that there's are you saying it's not sort of gender equal I, there was a fair amount of thespian ass in this movie I thought. <laughs> there's not that much uh, penis like given all the boobs that but we but see that, that's where you get into look I'm, we can get into a long conversation about whether that's a fair rating system is fair but that's where you bump it there. no that's that's I, I mean I, I look that's not what I was looking for in this movie anyway <laughs> but I mean the, the, the graphicness aside I mean honestly I didn't this is trying to be a mass market movie so I wasn't expecting you know NC-17 levels of raunch from it but it, it's just more the sort of um, the joylessness of the sex you know I mean I think yeah. maybe this relates to what Julia was saying about BDSM being at once like the point of the entire story and also something that the movie seems to be trying to hold at arm's length and oh. that the heroine is essentially 
essentially trying to convert the hero from right. Basically, he's like deviant, and so they. This, I mean, I don't envy them having to, to choreograph these sex scenes because they need to make the sex sexy enough that you think this seemingly somewhat smart and self-possessed young lady would like entertain signing this contract of her life away to noted helicopter pilot and glider <laughs> glider flyer. <laughs> <laughs> Christian Grey. So the sex has to be good enough that she seems intrigued by it, but then it can't be so good that you're like, yeah, just like live it up as a sub, like stick that ball gag in your mouth, girl, and just clamp down for the rest of your life. Like it has to be good but bad. And then also has to be sexy enough to titillate the audience, but not too sexy or graphic so that it gets an NC-17. It needs to not make the BDSM actually look appealing. It has to be like the tortured... like. What the hell? Like that, I actually think the sex scenes were pretty good given all of the parameters on yeah, them, right? Like that's, that's a true. that's a crazy, you know, gap to have to shoot. And but no, they were preposterous. I mean, and also like my favorite detail of the Red Room of Pain was there's this like huge four poster bed, but the mattress is just like a big. It looks like like a like a high jump mat or like a wrestling mat. Like a, it was very fox catcher. It had that kind of like tacky workout leather, and it's just like I can't I can't imagine. Any kind of romantic or sexual thing happening on like a wrestling mat, like it just seemed so athletic and unsensual <laughs> that um, it was not super appealing. But then the peacock feathers came, and so then it was like, <laughs> yeah. Woo! all right, it all <laughs> it all ramped up a bit. I don't know. I mean, I really I, the whole thing is just such an absurd confection of like dirge like supposed sexiness and like funny crinkled crinkled brows and blushes from Dakota Johnson. I, I just enjoyed it. I can't, I can't really defend it. But it was so demented. It was great. Yeah, I'm kind of with Julia. <laughs> All right, well, the movie is Fifty Shades of Grey. It's directed by Sam Taylor Johnson from the novel by E.L. James. Um, go see it in Alabama or elsewhere and come to our Facebook page and tell us if you felt Julia-style frissons of joy. Yeah, or... I called it frissonless. <laughs> <laughs> I talked about but the frissonlessness of it. But you keep talking about your own frissons. Not like bemusement, I think, is more <laughs> the word, but like delighted bemusement. Your voice says frissonless. The timbre says otherwise. <laughs> this movie is tickling Julia with a peacock feather as we speak. <laughs> so come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, and talk to us. Talk to us about light flogging. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for you to say that for years, Dana. <laughs> <sighs> All right, well, before we move on to our second topic, Julia, we have a word from our first sponsor. Yes, we are sponsored this week by Harry's, the wonderful razors by mail company. So for many of us, shaving is a pain. It's uncomfortable. You get nicks, cuts, and scrapes. You get razor burn. Razor blades are outrageously expensive. They live behind pesky plexiglass cabinets that you have to wait for someone to unlock. It's a super drag. And Harry has recognized all these problems and decided to make your life better by making shaving easier by making razors better. So they make their own blades and they liked the ones they were purchasing so much they purchased the factory in Germany where they're made. They're very high quality and you get a better shave that respects your face and your wallet. The blades are cheaper and superior. Harry's has a special deal for our listeners. Go to harrys.com now and you'll get 5% off if you type in our coupon code CULTURE with your first purchase. Start shaving better today. Thanks, Julia. Let's move on to topic number two. After 17 years, Jon Stewart has announced he's stepping down from the desk of The Daily Show sometime later this year. We're joined by Slate staff writer Jamel Bowie, who's written a provocative piece about why he's thrilled Jon Stewart is stepping down. Welcome to the show, Jamel. Hey, thanks for having me. So can you summarize your argument? We want to talk more in general about the departure of Jon Stewart, but in particular, we were interested in your take. Although you think Jon Stewart is a good comedian and you enjoyed his show, in fact, you say that you grew up with it and found it sort of a significant part of your political formation, you think that his time is up and it's time for him to step down. Can you summarize why? Sure. The, the big thing is, I think, Jon Stewart's method of comedy, which is kind of to sneer a bit and like poke fun at politicians and sort of poke fun at their venality and their, you know, worked really great as comedy, but I think part of the problem is that because he was this very singular voice during the Bush administration and during a time when it felt to many liberals that there was no particular uh, liberal or left-wing voice on television, that that method of comedy became sort of a way of talking about politics in general outside of comedy. And so now, 17 years after Stewart took the helm of The Daily Show, a lot of liberals engage politics 
in sort of the language of John Stewart, and I think that's not a good thing. Sort of engaging opposing arguments, um, snark may diffuse them among liberals, but do nothing to actually rebut them in kind of the public sphere. And so what you end up having, there's ideological combat actually happening, but one side has effectively like decided not to engage and instead is kind of hanging out in the back of the room, like being snarky about it when snark is what's, it's not, it's not what is needed. I don't, I'm interested that you, you see Stewart primarily as a purveyor of snark because you also talk a lot about his, uh, his bursts of sincerity, for example, his, uh, his appearance on Crossfire back in the early 2000s to, to criticize Crossfire and, and similar shows for, for ruining America, etc. You seem to have some kind of ambivalence toward that earnestness and cynicism. I, I, want, I wonder what you, how you feel about that. I, I kind of... So there, I feel like there's two sides to Stewart. If, if one side is sort of engaging politics... Um, with snark, which again is fine for comedy, it only kind of becomes a problem when like people outside of comedy begin using that as a method of engagement. The the other side is this, and I actually think it's it's related. It's like not separate from this. Um, the the other side is this idea that if there's something wrong with politics, like if if, if Stewart has like a a normative cure for what's happening and what's going on in politics, what's wrong is that people really disagree. <laughs> like part of our political problems aren't just that, you know, politicians can't, you know, get their heads together and solve problems, but that like politicians disagree fundamentally on what the problems are. And then even when they can agree on problems, they disagree fundamentally on how to solve them. And so this idea that if we could just be civil and get, we will get some work done. It's just not the case. Like it's not even naive. It's just sort of like not, it doesn't fit with reality. Well, and I think I think the other thing that's sort of frustrating about clinging to Stewart as a political actor is that he so actively refused the role. And you mentioned this in your piece, but he, particularly during the Bush era, I think a lot of liberals felt like, you know, you're leading us through this dark time. Please lead us, oh, wise one. And he's like, nah, 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 just a comedian. Like, to please stop putting pressures and desires on my shoulders. But there were several threads that went through his comedy, and they didn't necessarily all align perfectly. There was this notion that if we could just be civil, if we could just have proper conversations that weren't inflated by hot air, maybe things might be better, which is an argument you can have. But as you know, Jamal, it sort of papers over some of the significant difficulties we have. On the other hand, I do think some of the critiques you level at the show, I can't tell whether he's um, a problem or a symptom, right? Like his show felt incredibly urgent during the Bush years, where if you were a frustrated liberal and felt, God, if only there were someone sane in charge, these atrocities and inanities wouldn't be happening so pervasively. Oh, man. You know, and then in 2008, someone liberal and seemingly sane and nay, even inspiring and, and you know, uh, emotionally uplifting was elected president. And still, it's been very difficult to get things done. And I think the liberal plaint on that is often a process one. Oh, these Republicans in Congress. Oh, this and that. But when the show went from being like a torch, you know, born aloft in the, in the dark times of the Bush years for liberals to like, well, our guy isn't really getting it done. So we got to, you know, alternate between making kind of procedural excuses for him, critiquing him for the various ways in which he seems timid, ineffective or lame, and then poking fun at the people who critique him to point out that, in fact, he has done, you know, he has had some major accomplishments. That's just like a harder, that's a less essential feeling role, you know, like being the like trenchant opposition versus being the kind of like house jester, it necessarily feels less important. But that feels like something you can't pin on Stewart. That's just the case that satire will always flourish more in sort of troubled political times. Right. And, uh, you know, the plots at one of our superfests made this interesting, but I think interestingly false point, which was that, you know, Obama will be to young liberals possibly what Reagan was to young conservatives. And you see people who are young during the, and came of political age during the Reagan years now achieving middle age and power still inspired by the Reagan revolution, I had to stop him and say, but there's, there's no equivalent Obama revolution. There's no equivalent. The, all the enthusiasm was spent the first night in 08, you know, dancing in the streets of Brooklyn. Most of that was spent then. The equivalent thing really is called to the young liberals is Colbert and, and Stewart. And I, 
admired uh, Jamel's piece. I think it was the best of the equivocal pieces about John Stewart for pointing this out that this isn't a coherent political agenda or philosophy. Uh, and there isn't even really one behind it, as Julia points out, that it's much more based in kind of process or this illusion that, you know, if you can only restore sanity to all parties, there won't be hypocrisy. I mean, the defining thing about the Reagan revolution is it cohered young conservatives around a specific agenda and a specific idea about the role of government in individuals' lives that could then be, you know, a 30-year agenda. There's absolutely no equivalent on the left, and so we're stuck with a kind of at home, you know, channel changer in hand catharsis, and the two things aren't equivalent, which isn't to say the man was not a genius and a national saint, a uh, national treasure and a kind of comedic saint. I believe he's all those things, but it was important for someone like me to hear uh, someone like Jamel voice this other point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a comedic saint and a national treasure. I think it is interesting to talk a little bit about his mode of comedy. Like, I found myself watching Stewart much less after Obama was elected, and that may have to do with the political urgency of the show or my waning political frustration. It may have had to do with just my age and time of life and, you know, bedtime and priorities. Like, I I can't leave that out of the equation. But I also found, um, I mean, Stewart is incredibly gifted. He convened this empire, basically, of politically engaged comedians. Like, the fact that there is such a robust culture of politically engaged comedy right now, I think, owes itself in large part to the success of this show and the many careers that it has spawned. And, you know, comedy can just, like, distract you with, like, you know, lions and coconuts. Like, it doesn't doesn't have to be politically engaged. And we have a very rich politically engaged comedic culture, which I think we can thank him for. I found his comedic style, though, to wear on me over the years. Like, there used to be a feature in the Sunday paper. There may still be this feature in the Sunday paper in the Times where they would write out a couple of jokes from the late night shows. Like, they would sort of round up six or seven monologue jokes from, you know, Stuart Conan, whomever, and, and put them down in print. This was not a very good newspaper feature and if it still exists, it is not a very good newspaper feature. But it was really interesting and revealing to look at the writing of those jokes, I thought, because the jokes from Colbert, the jokes from Conan, even the jokes from Latterman were beautifully written, and they worked on the page. And the jokes for Stewart were, they were much less clever. They were much less ornate. They had much less to do with deafness or tightness or novelty of the writing. They were kind of pitches down the middle to Stuart. And when you read them, you could hear him kind of mugging and you could picture the faces he would do and the voices he might do and the kind of like way that he would gin up basically pretty straight, not even that funny jokes and turn them into something that was comedic and and amusing. But after I started reading that column and noticed that it just like the show felt, I realized how much the show kind of hung on his delivery. And that's both a testament to the quality of his delivery, but also all the mugging war on me over time. But it seems to me that that's also a testament to a a tradition of comedy that he helped to create, because you might say the same thing about Stephen Colbert. I don't know how his jokes would look on a page, but they were obviously extremely dependent on his persona and his delivery. It's different. It's not... They both... Obviously, persona and, and charisma and delivery is a huge part of anybody's comedy, but a lot of time, Jon Stewart was just kind of saying something politically sort of basic but cathartic feeling but saying it with a lot of, like, fun mugging and eye rolls, sort of. Whereas the the kind of conceits behind the Colbert jokes, I mean, the conceit of the whole Colbert persona was its own crazy joke spun out over an insane number of years and shows. But within that, things were just a little bit more complicated and, and interesting, actually. I mean, it's not fair to evaluate a comedian based on how their jokes appear on the page, which is why this column was so dumb. But it was, I did find it kind of colored the way I looked at him afterwards. Am I am I crying alone in the darkness here? Did you guys never find this? I just oh, like... I felt he very I felt he very often as a comedian carried the material over the finish line, um, and that it relied on it relied too much on the anticipated consensus of the reaction, you know, of the audience, which is a form of laziness. That's you know, but again, I want to say this is in the context of him having done essentially brilliant work for almost twenty years. It's amazing to think it was on the on the air that long too. Yeah, there, you you felt like you were part of the same smug club, and sometimes it felt good to be part of that club. And in darker political moments, it felt sometimes essential to be part of that club. I mean, maybe that's what you're getting at, Jamel, is that feeling like you're full of a club of malcontents is maybe not the best way to motivate a generation of young, politically-minded people towards productive action. Yeah, no, I, part of me thinks that, you know, my complaint has 
entirely to do with the fact that Stewart was just so successful that like he became such a touchstone for young liberals that you have this problem of just people thinking that the way to, to do politics is to be smug. And I feel like I just see this on the internet a lot, like the the proper reaction is not to engage or to, you know, constructively argue it's to it's to mug and it's to be condescending and it's to be smug about your disagreements and then that somehow becomes victory when it when it really isn't at all. I'd add also that, that to me, and this may be very specific to me, there's an undercurrent of Colbert's Catholicism which carries that conviction through. And you know, my point is that there isn't a large guiding idea-based conviction on the left. And so it makes sense that someone like Colbert, who seems to be rooted in a belief system, I mean, maybe projecting on it, but from what I've picked up uh, about him from profiles, this is true. He's like It's rooted in a set of abiding convictions about right and wrong, about which he doesn't appear to be especially embarrassed. And that gave that satire a center. One last thing I'd love to throw in is that this has been the pattern since the 1960s, which is we win culture and they win politics. And that's what we're supposed to content ourselves with. And I, that pattern somehow, I think, has to be, has to be broken. That's bleak. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the compensation that if you're a, an educated, progressive human being in the United States in the second half of the 20th century and first portion of the 21st century, that's your buyout, right? That's your bonus, is you share a sensibility with the people who make elite pop culture. That's it. That's, that's your psychic compensation for, <laughs> in, in a sense, losing a political agenda to... I mean, but we are saying forces. this. We are saying this in the middle of a two-term Democratic presidency that has, you know... By someone who governs to the, to the right of Ronald Reagan. And enacted health care, however I, fraught I and troubled I it totally may be. I totally agree. I mean, you know, like, it's, it's, it's... I mean, this is also just, like, the nature of being a liberal is to complain about whoever's in power, even if it's your guy, you know, it's like fundamentally has an uneasy relationship with power. And so the move more broadly, and I don't know that I think it's fair of us to pin this on Stewart particularly, is to be like, ah, our guy is not doing good enough, man. He's He needs to really step it up, like all these compromises, so in effect, you know, like, I think that I think that's sort of mm-hmm. intrinsic to... Yeah, I, but also, I want to say, like, I want to voice as as one last uh, opinion that I'm deeply grateful for the... I mean, catharsis is not a small thing, right? I mean, and I'm deeply grateful for the catharsis this person, you know, gave us, especially during the Bush years. It was no small psychic compensation. And I also think if you think about the young people that were galvanized to work, you know, to whom the wonks who've studied the Obama election and re-election, like a lot of that is an incredible motivation of young people both to vote and to contribute to the campaign and, you know, young tech people to go into working on kind of voter registration and, and voter analysis and, you know, the the whole kind of technocratic story of how the Obama campaign was won is on the backs of a very galvanized Youth, and I don't think that we can forget that. I think Stewart played a role in some of that galvanization. Yeah, you're here. I totally agree. Yeah, and I just sort of, I'll say, I guess, for my last opinion, that like that's totally true. That the Obama phenomena happened on the back of technocratic youth, and Stewart played a part. But I also think that within that, you see Stewart's deficiencies. Um, and and what I mean is that if you're if you're like your theory of politics is that all you need are competent people. Um, reasonable people and you can get things done. And what happens when you have a competent person and a reasonable person, um, but you still can't get things done? And I think you see, I think part of the dis- disenchantment of liberals uh, in the early, in like, you know, after the first two years of Obama was in that we have this guy who was good and seemed to be exactly what was needed to fix politics, and yet politics were not fixed. And in the absence of any sort of ideological core or broader idea of, about what you're trying to achieve, it's easy to get disenchanted, right? Because it's like, well, we thought we had what we needed, and we apparently do not. I know. I still feel like we're sort of saddling John Stewart with all of the problems of the, of the American left, which is a very heavy burden to shoulder. I mean, I have to maybe say a little bit with Steve for myself that I was really sad to hear the news that he's stepping down. But it also does sort of seem like not only is John Stewart's moment at the helm of that show over, but maybe the moment of The Daily Show itself has passed to some extent, that that brand of satire is more associated with the Bush administration ethos and that that was the moment that the show felt more necessary. All right, Jamel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Happy Snow Day. Jamel's piece is called Why John Stewart Was Bad for the Liberals Who Loved Him, and you can read it on Slate. You can also go on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, and tell us, are you sad, are you happy to see John Stewart go? And now I believe it's time for our second sponsor this week. What have we got, Julia? This week, the Culture Gabfest is sponsored by Netflix, presenting season three of its original series, House of Cards. I'm just like picturing the gloomy, undulating music of House of Cards behind me. Um, House of Cards is back on Friday, February 27th, so just two weeks left until we get to spend more time in the honeyed company of Francis <laughs> Underwood and his uh, his lovely Robin Wright wife. It is a grim and grisly portrait of Washington, but it is so deliciously soapy and fun. So I'm very excited for the return of this show. I feel like we were oh, we were just talking about House of Cards when we talked about um, Selma and how the particular Southern accent of um, David Oyelowo as... Martin Luther King was a little bit like Francis Underwood. So I'm looking forward to seeing House of Cards with that resonance in mind and seeing how it colors my appreciation of the show. So this season, now in the power seat of DC politics, the Underwoods must watch their backs as allies and enemies from the past can bring everything crashing down around them. So I think we're going to see a scrabbling grasp of power, which bodes well, I think. I also remember reading somewhere that there's going to be some sort of massive stomach-dropping twist early in the third season. So... That in in itself is reason to return. Good gracious. Another one? Okay. Uh, You can stream seasons one and two of House of Cards right now if you're not yet caught up. And then all seasons of season three will be available on Friday, February 27th, only on Netflix. All right. So on to our next topic. So the Oscars are coming up this Sunday. And um, we spent the last few weeks on the show talking about various movies that are up for awards. But we thought that for this very last show before the Oscars, we would talk about the red carpet, which is a big part of the reason that many people tune into the whole extravaganza at all. So a few weeks ago in The Times, there was a piece about um, the Manny cam on the red carpet, which is, I guess, the new phenomenon of asking actresses to place their manicures under a under a special camera I think you're and supposed to, like, walk the fingers. I think you're supposed to put your fingers in like a... It's like a little red carpet diorama and the... The actresses are supposed to become finger actors and stroll their manicures and their fancy gems. <laughs> I've never actually watched it. All right. Since none of us have actually seen it at work, let's hear a little bit of, of audio footage from a, a manicam experience on the red carpet. Can we do a manicam for all these yes. diamonds you're wearing on your fingers, actually? There's this one. I mean. I never wear a ring on this finger, so I put some, like, shiny. Very cool. You should do the little spider walk. Oh. Spider walk. Yeah, like, you're going to do the little walk up. Like, oh, I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> Woo! Love it. Is that what Spider-Man does? Yeah, I love that. I'll ask Andrew Gar- later. <laughs> do you want to do the manicam? Let's do manicam. Because I see you got some good stuff going on over Thank here. Thank you. Bre- look at this diamond from Forevermark. Loving this. Check it out. Look at that diamond. Look at that bling on the tips <laughs> of the nails. Yes. I, MJ did my manicure. This is caption nail polish. I love caption. And would you do the manicam for us? Oh, do you have some jewels on the I fingers? I've not got a manicure. My okay, hands are like so dry. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do no, it. No, no. I'll just give it a but... <laughs> Wait, show your ring. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So I think first that was Sarah Hyland, the eldest mm-hmm. daughter from Modern Family, and then the wonderful Laverne Cox from Orange is the New Black. You know, people whose work I admire being forced to parade their fingers and talk about their nail polish brand. I mean, I think we can all agree that the vapidity of that piece of audio and of the idea of the manicam in general just sort of sucks some humanity out of all of us. <laughs> but but to talk about the red carpet itself and just the larger kind of pageantry that surrounds the Oscars, I mean, should we be alarmed at the at the emptiness and or sexism of wanting to see movie stars in beautiful dresses having their picture taken before a big ceremony? I mean, I think basically our subject, the subject before the panel today is the glamour industrial complex, right? It's like part of what we expect of famous women primarily now that they get gussied up uh, and lacquered and shellacked and and show us their goods, like regularly when they're promoting a movie, during award season, you know, it's built into their contracts, like it's part of what you do to promote your movie is like show up somewhere in a nice dress and talk about it or look at it or talk to morons about your your nail polish because that's part of your fame and celebrity is part of what promotes the film. And it's it's like contractually ob- obligated extra labor for right. your movie. Not and only with the studio, but you might have all kinds of contracts with who knows what, Lancome, Harry Winston, Mew Mew. Yeah, but even but but I guess my point is that even if you are a person who happens to want to be an actor but 
is not actually interested in fashion and has chosen not to like rake in the bucks that you can rake in from being a spokesperson for Lancome or, you know, the muse of Takoon or whatever. You have to do this. This is part of the job. Like if you if you if you're like Janie dungarees and all you want to do is like walk around in overalls for the rest of your life, but you just happen to be our nation's greatest thespian. Like you have to do this. This is part of the deal. You you can't really get signed unless you play this game. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Complaints is stipulated. It's like very coveted work and a lot of people want to do it. And you're very replaceable if you don't. And let's not cry for celebrities. But it is interesting that it's become such a part of how we think about and promote culture that we thought it was worth examination as opposed to just talking about the dresses, which Dana and I will do next week as well. <laughs> but but let's talk about why we talk about the dresses. Like, why do we care? Why is this the primary venue for fashion, even though actually the fashions themselves aren't that interesting? What do we make of this? Steve, we, we gave you some assigned reading for this because I think Dana and I are both guilty consumers of at least some of this kind of coverage. We both are interested in clothes and style. And sometimes we like to look at pictures of people in interesting outfits or at least nice outfits and think about them. You have typically professed not to be such a person. So we assigned you to to read some of Go Fug Yourself, which is one of the best celebrity fashion blogs, and also Tom and Lorenzo, which is a slightly cattier version. What did you make from your descent, in uh, your manicam descent into the staircase of celebrity fashion hell? You know, you might as well have assigned me reading the classics of Cherokee literature in the original. It was impenetrably foreign to my sensibility. I could make neither head nor tail of it. But I think it raises interesting issues. And I've got three questions. It sounded like your, I believe your you know, descript, job description, but I'm wondering whether it was just totally non-normative and descriptive or whether you think that that's the way the system ought to work. But I'd like to make that a more pointed set of questions. I mean, the first is, shouldn't it be more gender neutral, right? I mean, shouldn't men I mean, and maybe it is, but it, my sense is that it's not at all. But maybe shouldn't men be forced to kind of dress up, dress fine, dress couture, do a spin, tell us what they're wearing? And secondly, you know, maybe there could be kind of a little bit of a career arc that early on you're a clothes horse and a fashion plate and a, and kind of an object of glamorous fascination. But after a while, you establish that you're a craftsperson uh, as an actress and, and that what you are in it for is something other than simply the way you look, especially as a young woman in mid-career, early mid-career to the end of your career, maybe you can get an exemption. Maybe there could be a little less of it. And then the third thing is the manicam, like, is there, a, is there a line beyond which it becomes absurd and invasive, and is this the line? I mean, I'm just wondering, what, what's the change in tone here? that we're picking up on. Um, so I have to throw it back to you because I've got nothing original to say I mean, your about. third question, does, it's like, what's the next frontier and, and how much of, of these public women's bodies are going to be policed? It's like, well, I think it's like the vagina cam. It's like, tell us right. about your Upskirt. bikini wax. Yeah, Upskirt like, red cam, what, right. what's your underwear? And, um, you know, like, are you are you sporting full Brazilian or have you, have you gone <laughs> retro? Like, I, I mean, th- there's always more parts of, of public bodies to be possessed and... Um, you know, like maybe that's where we're headed. As for your question about whether I think this should be part of the job description of like a public female entertainer, no, but I totally read Go Fug Yourself. Like I'm perhaps the relationship is akin to yours with the NFL and its concussion problem. Like I can't really esteem this as a cultural phenomenon, but uh, but I still participate. Um, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a terrific analogy, right? Like I know what the cost of men's bodies is, you know, and also there's a norm, there's a very bizarre kind of very um, absolutely, you know, supposedly anachronistic, I would think in many ways, anachronistic gender norm embodied by football, I, I, you know, but there I am, my eyeballs are just, it like delivers some kind of primal thrill and the eyeballs just return to it, even as they're starting to finally lose a battle to one's conscience. I just wonder, I mean, we're in a very specific moment, Dana, in the history of men and football, you know, where people are really waking up to the fact that it's a moral compromise to do it. Where, where, where are we in relation to the red carpet? I don't think the moral compromise is quite... I was asking Dana. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure you can really compare the agony of Maggie Gyllenhaal being mocked by Tom and Lorenzo to, you know, many, many men's brains being permanently damaged by oh, the Dana, sport they practice. I was so practice. hoping you could name one football player to pair with <laughs> Maggie Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Tom Brady, that's a football player. There you go. You've got a parallelism, (laughs) a working parallelism. I like those two as an analogous figure. (laughs) They're like an odd couple. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm not sure that the moral hazard is really comparable in those two cases. But I think in terms of, you know, the the, the cultural places that, that these two axes occupy, that Steve, you're, you're onto something. I sort of feel that I can't help but keep up with fashion because it's so everywhere. But obviously, that's because I'm choosing to go places that are part of the everywhere that, that fashion has taken over. And I think it's sort of my favorite part of Oscar night, honestly, because it's sort of a moment that that movie stars own up to their sort of cultural position as as Barbie dolls for our culture, you know, like paper dolls, people that we can dress up and fantasize about, whereas the Oscar ceremony itself has this added burden of sort of artistic integrity and, you know, self-congratulation. And there's there's something about the ceremony itself that seems more hypocritical than just like looking at ladies in pretty dresses and also men in, in fancy outfits. I mean, they are not exempt from mockery and or praise on these, these blogs either, although the proportion is far lower. Yeah, to get to your gender question, Steve, I think the sports metaphor actually kind of continues, which is that men do do it. There are bounds outside of which they cannot step. You can't just show up in like a rumpled Muji shirt and jeans. Like you got to play the game and you got to know the answer about who made your tuxedo. And if you get too fat or too hairy or you wear something too weird, someone will call you out on it. But fundamentally, the interest just isn't there. I think it's a little bit like women's professional sports. Like there are partisans, there are people doing it. You know, there's a small fan base for it, but it's just not it's not where the money's at. It's like not where the excitement is because the range of appearance options are more limited. It's not like those guys can just roll out of bed and show up, but it's just not where the money's at. I mean, one of my complaints and I wrote a piece about this for Slate years ago is that I do think this is the most kind of national and public conversation we have about clothes and style kind of like, you know, which I think are interesting. I think it's interesting to think about what people wear and and what interesting designers can do. But the design is just super boring, right? Like they mostly, in part because of the commentator complex, people are afraid of getting called out, wearing something weird, looking bad. And so there's a couple, there are a few adventurous dames who might wear something more interesting. Like you've got a Cape Blanchett who always looks amazing and wears something slightly unusual. You've got Tilda Swinton with her like you know, penchant for velour sackets and, uh, you know, striking lipstick. You've got the famous Bjork swan dress, which all true fashion watchers hail as a triumph rather than a fail. But everyone else is just kind of like sweetheart neckline, big poofy skirt. Fishtail hem. Fishtail hem, you know, like the spangles and sequins. And it's so fun to look at. But the aesthetic parameters within which you can look like an acceptable version of modern celebhood are so narrow, that it's kind of a drag, that this is the national fashion conversation we have. And that's actually why I kind of like Go Fug Yourself, because they cover these huge red carpet events, but they also cover, like, someone showed up for, like, a morning tea with journalists at a premiere of Fifty Shades of Grey in Australia, and they were wearing some kind of daytime-y thing. You know, there's a wider array of types of outfits on those blogs that can be can be fun. Yeah, and I think it's also not fair to characterize Go Fug Yourself specifically as a as a site of mockery and snark only. I think that those those two women are real appreciators of fashion. They cover runway shows. They know a lot about what's happening in fashion and they often will, you know, come to the to the rescue of someone who's being mocked by by other commentators or sort of praise their their individual style. Yeah. And they, and they also do they'll often like write fake dialogues within the heads of celebrities. They're sort of inventive writers. Oh, they're hilarious writers. I love reading that blog and yeah. their commenters are often very funny too. All right, Steve, I can hear your eyes glazing all the way from Alabama. Man. Safe word. Safe word. <laughs> yellow, red, yellow, red. Yellow, red. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But be warned, Steve, that next Tuesday with the Oscars over, Julia and I, I don't know if it'll be Slate Plus. I don't know if it's going to be in an intro, but we're going to hijack the conversation and make it about dresses. Maybe we should do Slate Plus Dress Bomb. Get some get some dress, other dress folks in here and just... Tie me it. up, tie me down. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we've done it. We've reached the moment in our show when we endorse. Stephen, what do you have this week? So I have two very quick endorsements. The first is that my uh, anime-obsessed daughter finally got me to watch Princess Mononoke, which she's seen four or five times. I loved it. I think it's kind of a masterpiece. And I'm slowly becoming familiar, embarrassedly late in my life, with uh, Miyazaki, who is a genius. Uh, So I love Princess Mononoke. Really cool, really interesting, really provocative movie. But then also, Fifty Shades of Grey got me thinking about what makes a good rom-com in this day and age. And I think it has to be that it balances... It provokes the entirely credulous belief that two people transcendentally belong with one another. At the same time, it takes account of the modern realities of modern romance. 
And thanks to Julia Turner, I found a movie that balanced those two things called Definitely Maybe. I finally saw it. Oh, seven years years later, you follow up on my endorsement. (laughs) This is so Steve Metcalf. Like, you drop the stone into the well, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and and then you finally get the little plunk of water um, echoing up. But after emailing you like six times in the last five years, what was that movie? And I always am on the verge of mistakenly renting Love Actually and thinking that's it. But that's the one that plots has some bizarre, sadomasochistic affection for it. But definitely maybe I thought, is it, I mean, it is not, a, I wouldn't say it's a classic of the genre. Maybe it will be considered one one day. It sat with me very, very well after watching it two nights ago. I thought it was sweet. I thought it had a statement to make about how you might end up with wrong people and right people and what the consequences of those choices might be, all against the backdrop of um, the Clinton uh, years and campaigns. And it features a young actress who came up and introduced herself after the L.A. show named Leanne Balaban, who's very, very good in the movie. Uh, anyway, so uh, highly recommended, definitely, maybe. Julie, what have you got this week? Well, I've been thinking this week about um, the death of David Carr, who was the media columnist for The Times, who died very suddenly on Thursday night last week. Uh, and there's been much written about him, if you want to go check it out. He was a, a terrific writer, a terrific reporter, a terrific mentor to many journalists, and just a wonderful, eccentric, interesting character of modern journalism. But one of the things I loved about his column uh, and that I admired about him is that you know, to be the Times media columnist is in some ways to be sort of the dean of journalism in a way. And he really embraced the new. He did not cover the kind of changes in the media landscape with a backward looking Luddite kicking and screaming, oh, the degradation of our sweet world tone. He was ruthless and gimlet eyed and he would call bullshit bullshit. But, you know, he also understood some of the upsides and advantages of changes in our profession. And I admired that about him. And it reminded me of something that I loved a couple months ago, but never shared with our listeners. And I'm sure many of them heard it. But the Times itself actually excavated this recording of Lou Reed upon first hearing the Ramones. Uh, when the Ramones came out. It's just an amazing piece of audio. He's talking to a producer who played a Ramones demo, I think, for him for the first time, and he's just blown away. And I think we should play the audio because it's pretty amazing. Did you just hear the way the songs start? Like you caught him in no and the same way they It doesn't build up, man. It's there, No, it goes at full throttle from beginning to end. It starts and ends, and then the next one starts and ends, and it's the same. It just goes sailing by. That's such a great concept, man. That's so That's No kidding. Now you hit the nail on the head. They're crazy. You know, that is, you know, without doubt, the most fantastic thing you've ever played for me, bar none. I mean, it makes everybody else look so and wimpy, wimpy, Patty Smith and me included, man. And just, wow. Everyone else looks like a sissy compared to that. Everybody else looks like they're really old-fashioned. Like, you know, that's rock and roll. They really hit where it hurts. They are everything everybody worried about. Every parent in America would freeze in their tracks if they heard this stuff. Mm-hmm. Everything, you know, they got them an amp, they got them a guitar, and now look. <laughs> there they are. Their worst dreams come true. It doesn't take any talent. All they're doing is banging it. Look at this. <laughs> I mean, isn't that just beautiful? And I just loved, I love that spirit of um, embracing what's what's coming next. All right. Well, we'll post the link to the article about that recording from The Times, which I think appeared in December on our show page. And... Um, Farewell, David Carr. We'll miss you. Oh, I like that. And I like it as a tribute to to Carr, who certainly was always a a man of the moment. So my endorsement this week actually occurred to me during our Fifty Shades of Grey segment. I realized that I must endorse a movie about sex that is actually a great movie and in which there's explicit, raunchy, sexy sex that also advances a, a beautiful love story. It's one of my favorite movies in the world. I wrote about it for Slate, I think, last year or the year before when the director, Nagisa Oshima, died. And it's called In the Realm of the Senses. It's a 1976 pretty hardcore uh, movie that tells a story based on true events in Japan in which a courtesan ran off with this married man and the two of them sort of had this, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like a journey into sexual debauchery together that did not end well. It's it's, it's a beautiful story of star-crossed lovers that is also just really hot porn (laughs) and just a beautiful 
perfectly realized work of art. So um, In the Realm of the Senses, directed by Nagisa Oshima. Have either of you seen this I movie? haven't. I read your piece about it and thought, I've got to see this, and I haven't seen it yet. So I have yet to see it. I will I will put it on the list. Um, I hope to watch it sooner than Steve watched it definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come back to me in seven years. <laughs> All right. Well, Stephen, thank you for calling in from Alabama. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Total, total blast. And Julia, great as always. Thanks for hosting, Dana. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. Or you could email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albracht. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Stephen Metcalf, I'm Dana Stevens. We will talk to you next week. You're the light, you're the night, you're the color of my blood. You're the cure, you're the pain, you're the only thing I want to touch. Never knew that it could mean so much, so much. The fear, I don't care, cause I've never been so high. Follow me through the dark, let me take you past the satellites. You can see the world you brought to life, to life. So love me like you do, la la, love me like you do, love me like you do. Touch me like you do, ta-ta-touch me like you do.